Hi, I'm Jack Antonoff, and I make music. I have a band called Bleachers, and I uh, write and produce records as well. Lift the roll. Push your pull. Well, hello and welcome to season two, kind of, of Introducing. My name is Tim Blackwell. And when I say kind of, it's not really the series I had initially planned for you. I had all these chats with cool bands lined up, you know, face-to-face chats. Remember when you could do those? Maybe a few cans. But because of COVID, look, we've had to change a few things up. And I promise I won't mention the C word again. But because of... We've had to resort to Zoom, which is fast becoming my least favourite word ever. Let's set up a Zoom. No, shut up. We'll get to our first chat for season two in a second with Jack Antonoff. I'm very excited for you to hear that. But our next episode in this kind of shrunken down mini three-part series features one of my favourite voices. I know that sounds weird to say, but just when you hear Hayley Mary's voice. You still love it. You still love it. You still love it a little bit. It kind of just sends you somewhere. Obviously, initially from the Jezebels, now doing incredible things solo. We caught up in between lockdowns and restrictions at a mutual mate's place. We put some pumpkin on an open fire, which ended up being a lot better than I thought, and drank some low-alcohol wine, which was exactly what I thought it was going to taste like. And also, we played some music as well, and I can't wait for you to hear that chat. I I was a bit serious and a bit, you know, pretty emo and, like, you know, the patriarchy. Mm. And now I'm like, it's more complicated than that, you yeah. fucking idiot. <laughs> like, it's, you know. Like yeah, I like that. And then to keep the theme of, uh, I don't know, cool as fuck Aussie women um, going, episode three features someone who I've never met before but just fell in love with as soon as we started chatting. The wonderful TK Mizer from her new home of Los Angeles. Just throwing LA into a song here and there. It's just so cool. I could move any street and it'll be fine because it's in LA. <laughs> Los Feliz. You can say Los Feliz. That's where I live. That's where I live. <laughs> I can't wait for you to hear that chat soon too. But let's do this. Um, the new Bleachers record, Take the Sadness Out of Saturday Night, is, well, I reckon that's my favourite album of the year so far. There's a lot of contenders, but it's it's on high rotation. I remember when I first heard Chinatown with Bruce Springsteen, I knew this was going to be something very special. And I was lucky enough to be part of like a Zoom chat. There's that word again, Zoom, with Jack Antonoff. And he played us some songs from the album before it was released from his New Jersey home, where, of course, he's very proud of New Jersey, and you'll hear that in our chat soon too. I won't bother going through Jack's accomplishments and awards. Luckily, someone invented Google for that, so um, make sure if you do search Jack Antonoff, block out the next hour because there's so much to go through. But, I mean, the most recent headlines, Taylor Swift, Grammys. That's all you really need to know. So I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be on another Zoom call with you a couple of weeks ago where you gave us a little taste of the new album. So I appreciate that straight off the bat. That was fun. I like I like um, talking to people who live in countries very far away about New Jersey. And I think I spent the whole time just talking about New Jersey from what a strange place it is. Yeah, well, you said something that I thought that stuck with me because I'm I'm a fan of a lot of New York bands, and you said this you said this great thing about how New York bands tend to be reporting from the center of the universe <laughs> and kind yeah. of just telling the rest of the world, well, this is what this is what's going on. So deal with it. This is what it is. That's New York music to me. Um, we are in the center of the world. This is what it is, and New Jersey music is 
right outside the center of the world, which is almost further away mm. than the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that what New Jersey music is to you? Because obviously then I, then I start thinking to myself, well, obviously Bruce Springsteen, which we'll, we'll cover in this chat, and obviously Sinatra and Bon Jovi, like New, New Jersey has its fair share of heavyweights. How would you describe New Jersey music then? New Jersey music is speaking in response to growing up or living in the place that is just outside the center of the earth. So almost living in like the ash of energy, you know, as it sort of <laughs> burns off. So, so the quick sort of touchstones would be like, you know, looking in the window of the party, younger brother. But the deeper context is this pull to get out because you're not in the place, but you can see the place. So you know what it's like and you can see it, but it's cruel, you know, you to, to, to get out of place, cut to, the realization that, you know, living somewhere that isn't the place actually creates so many dreams and so much inspiration, so much joy and hope and kind of like faith in a way that you don't always get in other places where something is just implied. You know, it's implied that New York City is great. Well, then what, what about New Jersey? How are we going to make it great? I guess we're going to have to, you know, start bands and play in our basement and have really, really big dreams. New York City in itself is a big dream. To have a big dream growing up in New Jersey is actually a little more unique. And so then you realize that this thing that you've been trying to get away from that seemed like anti-culture was actually in many ways a more rich culture than you ever imagined. And that's the, the interplay. Well, because I'm a radio guy here in Australia and a bit of a radio nerd, I don't know if this is true, but uh, I heard a rumor that I think it was Z100 in New York, their on-air staff were getting a little bit too big for their boots type thing. So the manager at the time pointed the studios to face New Jersey. So even though they were on air in New York, <laughs> they were facing away and not seeing any of the bright lights and the tall buildings of Manhattan. I, I had never heard no, that. I'm not but, sure uh, if that's true, but I like the story. I mean, true or not, you know, it's doing something for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where am I speaking to you um, from now? Because normally when we do this podcast, I'm face to face and we're generally a few beers deep and we, um, we, we talk yeah. easy. But where am I speaking to you from today? I, I'm in New York, man. I'm in the center of the. Uh, <laughs> You're reporting from the center of the universe. Yeah, reporting from the center of the world. But I got all the damage as someone who lived their whole life in Jersey. So I, you know, I'm going to bring it all to the table. Well, let's go back a bit, and because this is introducing, are you from a musical household, or were you the first of your family to pick up an instrument and and, and sing a tune? My father's a great guitar player, and my family's very musical. My mother plays the flute, and music is such a big part of the household. I'm the, I'm the first person to do it uh, like this, as as a, and that that that's you know it takes a certain amount of generations, you know, for my family, you know, coming out of Europe and you know building a life in in America, and and then uh, to the point where I get to kind of actually you know give it a real shot. That wasn't an option for my father, who was a great musician. But he was a little bit more like, uh, you know, I think his father had a shoe factory and it was, you know, as soon as he graduated high school, it was full on kind of cut your hair, come work here culture. When I was coming up, it was uh, like, OK, give it a shot. <laughs> what was the first kind of song that that made you sit up and, and take notice as far as an artist you might have heard? Was it a record your, your father played or was it something from Z100? Well, my father used to play all this ragtime music. Yeah. Um, which I'll show you kind of the feeling of it. It was like, uh, like my dad would play a song that went like this. Like this sort of like fast picking ragtime thing. Yeah, yeah. I heard a lot of that growing up. And he would place the, yeah, like this, like a... Like a, I'm not very good at it. 
It sounds like you're the soundtrack to someone walking around very fast. Yeah, it's like super fast, <laughs> yeah. b- b- bouncy ragtime thing. So uh, there was that in the house, which is really a Southern thing. And we were living in New Jersey. Um, but the, the music of my parents' generation mixed with the music of the 90s. That was my whole upbringing. So it was equal parts, you know, Beatles 10 years after Blood, Sweat and Tears, Joni Mitchell, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire, Sly the Family Stone and, you know, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Green Day, Fiona Apple, Bjork, like all sort of coming through at once. Yeah. And that's, that, those are two of the, you know, greatest times in music. And I was just kind of filled with it. You know, it's interesting. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a difference between loving music and even loving playing, but then to be compelled to write. I remember starting to feel that, that around like 10 or 11, this sort of, you know, feeling of like hearing something and wanting to hear something that I hadn't heard that I could do, you know, which is a tall order and kind of what you're always after. But yeah, starting to get some instruments and mess around on them and, and, and feel way less interested in playing. You know, all my friends wanted to play other people's songs pretty early. I always wanted to play my own songs, which probably weren't very good at the time, but um, it was something that was really baked into, I don't know, it was like a language there that I was attracted to or, or, or saw myself in. So it is a way that I could communicate. Do you remember what your first song that you wrote was called? It's called last week's lunch. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> was I it that literal? It was, it was finding an old lunch in your locker, your school locker, but I, you know, I could be grasping at straws, but I imagine that maybe the sentiment could have been viewed as like something vibrant, rotting, um, and and living within your home or locker without you even knowing about it, you know, what's, what's rotting in your zone. Um, but, uh, yeah, cause it was like the lyrics, like, like something that was like 11. I was like, I'm last week's lunch. Nobody cares about me. It was like the lyric. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, is an interesting sentiment. Maybe I could have framed it better, but I was pretty young. As opposed to if you were going to school in New York, you were like, check out my amazing lunch. <laughs> yeah. If I was going to school in New York, I'd be like, I am last week's lunch. And is that a problem? <laughs> <laughs> eat it now. Eat it. Yeah. Eat it and enjoy it. You know, motherfucker. But you know, New, New Jersey was much where I'm last week's lunch. No one cares about me. I, I got to get out of here. <laughs> what was the step then from last week's lunch to then maybe forming a band or maybe getting out of your own head and realizing I could, I could make sounds and make music with other people. Because, see, that's the bit that I'm almost 40 and I love music, which is why I just interview people who are very good at it as opposed to play it myself. I miss that opportunity of maybe hanging out with people when I was younger and deciding to play music together. I'm, I, I'm very I'm yeah. in awe of people who make that decision and obviously very early in life. You know, when I was growing up, it wasn't easy to find people who played music, you know, like it was more like, you know, we all share the stories of like, how'd you, how'd you become the bass player? Well, no one played bass, you know, <laughs> how'd you become the drummer? We needed a drummer. And, and there was a lot of that, you know, yeah, I, there was a lot of that. Like in my school, it was like, we had a group of friends and at some point I was like, look, we're starting a band. So like, everyone's got to figure out what they're going to play because I'm playing guitar. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then my the journey just through the years was this weird one where sort of like, it's funny to be serious about something that most other people aren't. Because, you know, I was it's always was like, oh, this, this is what I do. So, you know, that's that's it. This is what I do. I hope it works out because this is what I do. Mm. But, you know, I was different people in bands and high school I had bands. And then even like when people were going to college, I still had bands. And then people would sort of like just one by one, they would kind of like drop like flies. They'd, they'd go and get a different job. They'd go back to school. They'd meet someone. They'd get married. And I just was always sort of there. I was never going anywhere else. And, and so it was always the same story when I was a kid in grade school and then high school and then the years that some people went to college, I didn't, I was kind of touring. I was always just trying to wrangle people to play with me and to be part of this, you know, 
vessel to, 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 to do this thing. And, uh, they'd always kind of go home after a while. <laughs> well, the, the internet says that Outline was your first band, but is that true? Or can you remember all the bands that you were in? The last week's lunch group was called The Fizz. <laughs> That's a good name. And I think our, our original name was going to be Flatline. But I think my mother was like, no, no, that's, that's, that's cynical and weird. So, so Outline was outline was it? Out, outline was the first band yeah. that like, you know, we, we, we played shows, probably played a few hundred shows. We, we really played. We played and played and played. I was like 15, 16, 17. I was in that band. Oh, we had good songs. We, we were kind of like a hardcore band, so it's a bit hard to play. But, you know, we were a little bit like slightly political, slightly emotional kind of, but also like real like thrashy and quick, quick songs. So what was this song then that you remember kind of blew you up and realized that this is going to be a career, I can make money out of this, and I can take it where I want to take it? I wrote a song called Angelica, which was not a popular song and was not a song responsible for anything, but it was the first song I wrote where I thought, um, oh, I I think that's really something. You know, I I really hear myself in that, and I really hear something singular in it. And, you know, that feeling when you do something, you're sort of sort of covered with embarrassment that you even did it. It was one of the first times where I was like, nope, that's good. And I want people to hear it. And I want to sort of throw it out like a prayer into the world and, and see if I can kind of find my people. It hit a bar for me. It's sort of like, you know, recognizing that moment when you're sort of beyond doubt or cynicism. You and I are similar ages, and that, that kind of means we've straddled the, the world where it was pre-internet music and now where we're sitting now where you can click a mouse and release an album to the world in about two seconds. How are you getting your music out there at the start? We handed out flyers. Save, yeah, flyers, <laughs> saving up money, print, printing seven inches and yeah. making tapes and selling those. You know, my band after that, we got a small label deal and, you know, made CDs and then there was mp3.com and then there was all that. And then it just sort of kind of snowballed. But, you know, it was always, it's kind of the same shit in a really weird way where it's like, you're in the studio, whether that studio is like your friend's basement or some big studio, you know, you're somewhere where you're trying to capture the thing. And then you're getting the thing out there, whether that's streaming or seven inches, it's kind of the same process. All this boils down to, to me, and I think about it a lot now that I'm about to put a record out and I'm kind of doing things like this again and talking to people and, and, you know, so what are you doing? You know, you're looking for your people. The goal is not, you don't want everyone. I mean, if everyone likes something, then how interesting could it possibly be? You know, you're, you're yeah. looking for your, your people and, mm. and anyone can come in. That can be a, uh, no one's excluded, but it's that feeling. I think about like when you're in high school and you walk in, there's all these people, who the fuck, are, what is this? What is this? I don't, you know, I'm so alone. I'm so alone. You see someone from across the room in the, in the crowd and, could be a shirt, could be a look on their face, could be a feeling. You're like, that's my person. It's something you re- recognize in someone you fall in love with. It's someone you recognize in someone who sees you and then you see them. It's something I recognize in my audience. And so whether, like I said, it was printing seven inches or, you know, big streaming culture or, or, or and anything in between, I'm just looking for my, my people and they know that. And I know that. And, what else matters? Did you think it was easier though? Because I, I remember, I think you, you were saying something that I thought was so true. Like, I loved 90s music as well. Like, big bands were big because everyone loved them. Like, I loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so, if I could walk into a room and I could say, I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you'd feel everyone yeah, about everyone. that. Whereas yeah. now it feels like the big bands, it's kind of not cool to like the big bands. Well, I feel like everything's a little siloed off into, you know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the, the more. Uh, I'm so focused on the writing and, and, and playing and producing and things like that, that, that sometimes the cycles that things go through is a little bit, um, I mean, there's almost a boredom to it because they're so cyclical. It's like, we just, you know, 
we go to guitars, we go to electronics, we go to guitars, we go to electronics, we go to drum machines, we go back to live drums, we go to, the, you know, we go to, we go to beauty, we go to dissonance, we go to beauty, we go to dissonance, we go to, we go to, you know, you can almost clock culture by the genes, you know, they're, they're, they're super tight, they're super loose, they're super tight, they're super loose, you know. <laughs> I think we're in the but, loose phase now, I think it's Yeah, not, we're in the loose phase, sometimes cool the bottom. It's not tight genes anymore. It, yeah, sometimes <laughs> the bottom flares out, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes the bottom is straight, it's like, you know, and, and, uh, Look, I'm not, and I don't even mean this literally, even though I'm talking about clothes, it's all just the way something's dressed up, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the difference between Tower Records or Spotify or me printing seven inches with my friend? Yeah. It's just the means and, and, and it's all kind of so secondary to if you can, you know, achieve that magic that can, that can be in the, in the work. What was the song that, that really blew up for you? Was it, was it with fun or was it something previous to that? That no, fun was the first when we put We Were Young out. That was yeah. the you know everything before that was truly you know by yeah. design indie. You know, playing to a couple hundred people, selling a few thousand records. You know, yeah. festival slots here and there. Did you realize things had changed? And then you look back, and a year had gone past, and you're like, my life's completely different now. Well, it's funny when things shift outwardly, but your body's literally like you know if you're on tour and you're playing to a hundred people, or if you're on tour and you're playing to ten thousand people, obviously there's like the size of the stage is different. The crew, you might sleep in a nicer hotel room, but you're mm. still in a hotel room. Yeah. You're still going from state to state. You know, you're still playing. Your body is sort of like the energy around you is massively shifted, but your body is literally doing the same thing that it's done for years. Uh, that's a weird thing because, you know, quote unquote, everything has changed, but I'm like, well, I'm just going to the show, picking up my guitar. I'm in the hotel. The hotel's nicer, but mm. I'm still in the hotel, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I go to the next city. You know, I used to drive the van. Now I sit on the bus, but I'm still yeah. in motion. Like, yeah. And so, and I feel that way constantly. Like, even where I sit now, it's like, is this room any different than my childhood bedroom? Is, you know, is the studio I go to any different, like, than my friend's basement where we recorded? Is the show any different than the ones I grew up playing? Certainly not when you think about the intention of what you're there to do. And I think that's good. I think I think if you can hang in that balance, that's good. I think, you know, chiming in on how much things have changed. Uh, I don't know how much fruit there is there. You know, to, to what end? Mm. What is it? What's the goal there? Well, you're right. Like, the physicality hasn't changed. But I think what you said before about your people, I think that's the key. Because I remember even a director once said, like, what was it like working with Robert Redford? And it's like, well, try working with someone who hasn't heard the word no for 30 years. Mm. But there are a lot of yes men and a lot of yes women in the business. Yeah, but you know what? That, that story makes me think, without knowing any of these people, <laughs> that makes me think that that director, whoever it is, is actually screaming in a mirror. <laughs> and maybe Robert Redford hears no all the time. <laughs> and maybe that director is taking all the... You know, maybe he's talking to his father, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. you know because everyone hears no. <laughs> I guess it was a lovely answer to a question, whether it's true or not. It might be like the Z100 yes, thing. Yes, it's it a great answer. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? Just like the Z100 thing, it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell us about your people, because obviously a lot of us have heard of your people. We've got Taylor Swift, we've got Lana Del Rey, we've got Bruce Springsteen, who um, appears on uh, Chinatown. And to this day, I think, according to my Spotify, was my most played song of 2020. So thanks for that. Oh, wait, really? Uh, oh, it's amazing. It absolutely was. It, it's, and it's- that song, I, like, some songs are here, some songs are there. You're expressing different pieces of yourself. You're looking at, like, the basement of yourself, the front mm. door. If you just, like, split me open, Chinatown would play. That is the most, whatever it means, me sounding thing that I've ever done. As soon as I just, started writing it and, and producing it in the way it sounds is just like, uh, yeah, there's so much hope and there's so much darkness and it's, it's romantic and it's dreadful. And it's like, uh, yeah, not every song is meant to be that, but that's like kind of like the cliff notes of, of what I sound like. 
And then, so where does Bruce Springsteen come into it? Because obviously he's one of your people and that must be a, a kind of a pinch me moment, obviously. Was that he always going to be a part of that song? No, not, not at all. I would not have been able to write a song and think to myself, this will be a duet with Bruce. That wouldn't, you know, he's, he's very deeply inspired by him. He's the person who showed me that the, the complicated feelings I have towards the place I'm from and myself have value. No, it was, uh, I wrote that song and I had a demo of it and we were hanging out and playing each other's stuff and very organically, you know, the studio at his place, messing around on it. He's singing on it. Just, just having a good time. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't uh, until a couple of days later I listened back and I heard bleachers and I heard myself and I heard my future and I heard my past. And then I heard his voice, him singing the second verse, which is the person who is not only my dear friend now, but the voice that inspired me to have the power to even be able to write a song like that later in my life. And I was, uh, I loved it. And I was proud and I had this feeling, which is a very rare feeling, but when you get it, you got to just sit in it, which is fuck. I got one and I can't wait to release it. <laughs> well, it's also like, I, almost like I've never heard anything like it before. That wasn't a duet, as you mentioned in the traditional form at all, whereas he comes in and you come in like, he's just, brought into this moment where it absolutely felt right for him to be there then. Any, yeah. any earlier would have been weird. Big weird accident. Yeah. <laughs> the, the song is the song is just like a speeding car. You know, you don't, you're not sure if it's going to go off the cliff. It keeps getting closer to the edge. There's yeah. so much tension in it. And he and his tension's growing. And, and the, the trick of the song is that it actually never relieves the tension. Yeah. It just grows and grows and grows and grows. And then Bruce comes in and where is this going to go? And then it just gets bigger and then we're both screaming. And then instead of ever relieving the tension, it fades out, which I love because of fade out, which interesting cultural point, they always say, don't do fade outs. They're bad for streaming. They don't perform well on playlists. And I'm like, you guys can't fucking tell me that shit. That's horrible. <laughs> Even if it's true, but a fade out does this thing, which a fade out, which that song had to be, hence the speeding car on the edge. Mm. It makes you feel like, you are no longer, you know, the part, the part where you hear this song is over, but this song goes on forever. Yeah, I like that. Your experience, you know, is whatever, three or four minutes. Yeah. But FYI, this, you know where the song starts? <laughs> you don't know where it ends. Just like a relationship. That's what that song is. No, I think it's amazing. Did, did you really drive around with him to actually get his opinion on, on the album as a whole? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a driving album. But it's also a good place to listen to, you know, driving, walking. I love listening to music, yeah. even from showing someone something when there's something else going on, because you want music to do these two things. You want it to be like hyper right in front of your face, but you also want it to like wash over you while life is happening. And that's why music is so powerful. Like, you know, you, I love all forms of art, but you, you, you watch a movie, you stare at a painting, you read a book. Even if you take the book to the park, even if you watch the movie on your phone somewhere, music is the only one that's with you everywhere. You walk with music, you talk with music, you know, you drive with music, you are at the airport, music's on. And so you're hearing all this, these songs in all these different places and they hit you in different ways. And I like to show people my music with that theory in mind. Well, yeah, I remember as a kid sitting in the back of my parents' car, I'd look out the window and whatever song's on the radio, I'd just imagine that's the perfect film clip for that song. doesn't matter where we are. I'd just go, that's the greatest video for that song. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I also heard that's that the, the, exactly Nick, it. the Nick Cave used to sit, like his neighbours used to always talk about, that Nick Cave used to sit out the front of his house before it was about to release an album and listen to it in the car. Because if it doesn't sound good in the car, we're going back mm -hmm. and redoing it. 
Yeah, that's the car. The the new version of the car for me is also the just the old iPod headphones. You know, if it's working there, it's working <laughs> yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, speaking of Nick Cave, Warren Ellis. Oh right. shit! One second, I just gotta grab one there. We'll be yeah, right do back. It, Hold do on. It, do it. So sorry about that. I, uh, it's okay. If I don't get the package when it comes to my building, especially at night, everything gets real fucked up. It's a weird building. No, There's still fine. water in the process. No, that's fine. <laughs> Um, sorry, what were you saying? With Nick Kaye, I think with Warren Ellis, is it true played um, violin on the opening track of the album, 91? He did. Nick and Warren were making, I think, um, they're making Ghosting at a studio. I think they were mixing it only. Yeah. A studio in LA. And I was there in a different room and... Um, Oh my god! I spilled water everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, it didn't look like, like that big a bottle. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. Um, I'm in no rush. If it, you want to clean up, you're welcome to clean up. Hey, one second. Just got on some yeah. equipment. Hold on. It's the beauty of me zooming right into your personal space. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I got it. Um, also, I guess it'll just evaporate. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. It's I was just, in a studio just- in LA. And um, they were mixing ghosting. Yeah. It was sort of two rooms, not, not too far from each other. Mm. Figuring out the song and, and uh, me and actually Andy, Andy Clark, who was producing it with me, this idea for it to be strings. And Warren was playing me a bunch of the stuff that they were doing. And then he came into my arm. I was playing in this. And just, just no different to the Bruce story. He's like, oh, he gets his violin, is messing around. And, you know, it, it always sort of functions that way, where it's this quick sort of like, oh, you know, you feel like you're sort of giving that subconscious permission to someone like, Hey, if you hear anything, do you? And it's sort of an unspoken thing. That was that. And then it's beautiful what he did. He's probably my favorite player of that instrument to have ever existed. His, his whole personality and feral joy and darkness just flies out of it. One of the best shows I've ever seen was Nick Cave and Warren Ellis performing uh, film scores that they had written with at the Sydney Opera House on a projector wow. and they had the moments from different films that they they had uh, done the score for and they played the scores live. There were barely any lyrics. You Beautiful. Didn't, you didn't look at your phone once, put it that way. You didn't need to. Yeah. <laughs> um, Beautiful. Collaboration is a massive part of what you do. Um, you've won Grammys recently with Taylor Swift. You work closely with Lana Del Rey, our very own Troy Sivan, uh, Lord currently, but you don't write songs for other people though, do you? I've never written a song and handed it to someone. I, um, you know, if I'm uh, writing a song, even if someone's helping me, it's my story and my lyrics. I couldn't write a song for someone else. It's just not what I, it's a beautiful thing. If someone can do it, I can't do it. But um, when I'm with someone else, I'm working with them and kind of we're working together. Uh, sometimes I'm only producing, sometimes I'm writing with them. But yeah, so, I, so you know, if I write something, it's quite the opposite. You're working with Lord, and we obviously, as we do with every New Zealander in Australia, they kind of claim them as our own. So that's um, yeah. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, but she calls you your her, her songwriting husband. How many um, how many wives do you have? Not a ton, you know. And and, and she's a, a really the relationship I have with her is um, incredibly singular and incredibly special. And she's sort of found artistic parts within me and pushed on them that I didn't even know existed. So it's, you're on a different planet with different people. There's no overlap. There's, you know, these are, there's such intense, emotional inspired processes, uh, inspired process that you, um, nothing, nothing else is there when you're working with someone, even if it's for a couple hours and you leave and go somewhere else in that time period, the, the world is, the world goes dark and it's just the world you're on. It's part of the reason why I love this work so much. It's also part of the reason why I can fuck you up so much. What was your plan, say, I know that it's hard to think of a world now without 
COVID and, and lockdowns and all that stuff. Releasing an album now, was it was it always intended to to sound this way or was was current events kind of in, inspiring certain things on it and, and why you chose to release it now? The, the release was just when I finished it because you want to, when you finish something which can take a really long time, you want to come out quickly because you're in a conversation with yourself and with people and you want it to be alive and vibrant. So I wouldn't hold anything back because of COVID. But the pandemic entirely changed the sound of it because I didn't know live music was fragile, which is absurd. Everything's fragile. But I thought it was just, you know, you got this, you know, radio, press, TV, blah, blah. Who knows if they're ever going to play your music, but live music, you go, you play your guts out and then it's yours. Mm. It's yours and you and your audience and you can be with them forever and you can challenge them and they can challenge you. And then poof, from my corner of the world, this unbreakable thing is broken. And so my band comes to the studio, you know, plays on all the records and they played in a way that I could have never known they could have played. And that is easily described as they played like they might never play again. And we knew we'd play again, but we didn't know if we would play in the way we need to play a bleacher show, the bleachers audience. It's people on top of each other. It's, it's communal. We're all singing it. We're it's, it's, it's a super spreader, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's the conversation that we're in with our audience and Holy fuck, is that ever going to be back? So we played with all this anxiety, all this frustration, all this joy, all this hope this dream. Maybe we'll play again like that. And it, it's that car almost going off the cliff. Mm. And, it, and I was telling these dark stories in the album, and the way the band played became a character on the album that I didn't even know I needed, which was they were all the joy and all the hope, totally reframing the lyrics. If I'm saying something dark, they're pushing me forward. Well, I noticed it's, that. It's the sound of the album. Stop Making This Hurt, I think, was one of the great examples of that I, I noticed myself. Annoyingly, by the way, before I got to speak to you, my private access to the album expired. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on a few, few days ago now. But that, that song in particular sounded so hopeful and so happy. And there was like this chorus of people, a bit off mic even, just having a great time. And the saxophone was just beautiful. But as you said, quite a dark sentiment. Yeah. And if the pandemic hasn't happened, I may have produced it in a different way. But this joy and frustration and, and <laughs> of playing with the band became the sound of the album. And it became more than the sound of the album. Like I said, it's a character on there that is driving the whole thing forward. It's, the, it's that unearned hope, which is a hallmark of the album. Unearned hope. Why does this song sound so hopeful? Why at the end of the lyrics, there's still this clinging to light. These stories are not earning hope, but it's there. And that's what I'm interested in looking at. That's what the album's about. It seems from where we're sitting in Australia, America seems like they're back and they're out. Um, have you got any shows planned? Have you played a show maybe? How was I haven't that? played yet. I haven't played yet, but I got a whole tour in September and yeah. I hope it happens. And if it does, it'll be church. And if it doesn't, then we'll be back soon. <laughs> but I can't wait to get down to Australia. And whenever it's possible, I really can't wait. No, well, we'd love to see you, Jack, and, and we really thank you for your time today. And I, yeah, when we come down, I'll come in, we'll actually drink, and we'll have a longer conversation. Yeah, that sounds good. Before you go, though, it's called Introducing, and we kind of like to just pay it forward a little bit. And I know this is probably going to be an impossibly hard question for you to answer, but is there anyone you would like to introduce us to, an artist you're working with, an artist you're loving listening to yourself, someone we may not have heard of before, someone that is super famous that's got something great coming out that we don't know about yet, um, anything you'd like to pass on as we finish There's up an artist. Um, who I actually just saw today, named Claude. Cool. I love their music. Uh, check out a song called Soft Spot. Check out the whole album, Super Monster. Claude. Claude is the shit. Let's blow them up in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Jack, thanks so much for your time, mate, and clean up. Uh, yeah, great talking talk to you. Take care. Lift the room. Push your boots.